electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. A dangerous man, Senator Warren lays into Fed Chair Jay Powell as the market debates whether his days are numbered. What will the rising number of Fed vacancies mean for policy, and does it explain rising rates and the steepening yield curve? We will explore that. Plus, nat gas goes parabolic. The only thing wilder is the fact that it's now reversing is lower on the session today. But the 20% surge over the past week is causing trouble in the U.K. and reverberating across the globe. We will get the latest in the impact it could have here. And a dire warning from Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. If we don't raise the debt ceiling, the country could face a financial crisis and a recession. No big deal. A potential vote now set for this afternoon. We'll follow all the latest action. But first, over to Dom Chu with a look at today's big market drop. I mean, it's not just the drama in D.C. It's drama everywhere these days, right, Kelly? So for the longest time, we hadn't really seen volatility. It's kind of really come to a head over the last couple of days here, specifically with Evergrande over the course of this past week in China. And now, given all the concerns that we have over the debt ceiling and debt limits and everything else in America, what we have is a very down market. It's actually towards session lows right now. The Dow Industrial is down 580 points. That's one and two thirds percent downside there. The S&P 500, 43.49, the last trade there. It's up roughly 94 points. To provide some context around the trading day so far, at the highs of the day, we were down roughly 24 points, 24 handles. And then at the lows of the day right now, down about 96. So sitting again, just at about the lows of the session so far, off more than 2%, nearly 3% declines for the NASDAQ composite. It's off 417 points, 14,552, the last trade there. Within that broader technology NASDAQ theme, there are certain parts of the market that are getting hit perhaps worse than others. The Van Eyck Vector Semiconductor ETF, ticker SMH, is off just around 4% at this stage here. The iShares Tech Software ETF, ticker IGV, 3.5% declines there. And similar percentage declines for the First Trust Dow Jones Internet ETF. That has a lot of the big Internet-based names, communication services types names. Those ETFs, again, underperforming the market even in this sell-off. And then, if you're looking for the stocks that are actually showing some signs of life right now, they may not all be positive, but check out Kroger Tyson Foods, Clorox, J.M. Smucker, and Hormel. They are either up or marginally to the downside today. What do these all have in common? They're all consumer staples companies. They were pretty much given away over the course of the last year here as people really focused on the reopening trade post-pandemic. However, in an ideal situation for these stocks, you have a mini rotation out of some tech names like we've just shown you into some of these. We'll see if that sticks, Kelly, but still. Food processors, really in vogue right now, at least for today. We'll see if that sticks. Back over to you. Thank you very much, Dom. Dom Chu. Let's get a check on Treasury yields. Big story of the day. Trading near three-month highs right now, and Rick Santelli is here to dig into the whole story for us. He's at the CME this afternoon. Rick? Yes, Kelly. If you look at a one-week chart, and of course these uh, take into account the Fed meeting last Tuesday and Wednesday, here's 10s and 30s. And you can see they've been zooming higher. Now, even though on 10s we're towards the low end of yield, the high part of prices for today, 
We're still higher in yield than yesterday, and the 30-year bond seems to be making up some lost ground, and it has been the laggard because it has to, of course, deal with some of the big demand, the longest maturity positive yield, even though it's a real negative yield, still lots of buyers there. Look at Boons and Gilts, same scenario. And their central banks are going in opposite directions. The ECB leans more dovish. The Bank of England certainly sounds more hawkish. And no matter how you slice it, no matter where you look, the pressures of inflation are building. Call it transitory. Call it anything you want. Call it anecdotal. But whether you look at five-year break-evens or ten-year break-evens in Europe, they're back to 2012 and 2013 areas, respectively. If you look at today's home values, price index, and the S&P for July, what you'll notice is at 19.7% year-over-year, highest, second-highest ever going back to 88 personal consumption expenditure, CPI year over year. And by the way, CPI in Europe comes out Friday. Now let's look at what's going on with the FOB. This is 30s minus 5s. You know, the 30-year has been a bit of a lagger. And even at 105, that's a very flat yield curve. But it has steepened a bit as the 30-year starts to play catch-up. And finally, what is all this doing to foreign exchange? It's helping the dollar, and it's certainly hurting the euro. But maybe the biggest issue with the euro is, is that even though they seem to have vaccines at a nice fashion coming and improving some of their history in that regard, they certainly seem to be dragging their feet on inflation pressures and any type of policy reversals. Kelly, back to you. Rick, could you go back to the sort of steepening or flattening or, or you know, what, what we're seeing at the moment and the extent to which, in a sort of circular way, the more dovish the Fed, the more rates are likely to rise and things might steep. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's counterintuitive, but it seems to be kind of what's going on here. Yes, it is counterintuitive. And even though I can't see the results of the seven-year note auction, rates have ticked up a little bit in the last few minutes. And my guess is therein lies a good answer to your question. Forget the two-year for a minute. Threes, specifically fives and sevens, that mid part to the beginning of the curve is what's going to start reflecting the nervousness in the real world of finance for rates to potentially move up. The long end gets caught between the crossfire of a nervous equity market trying to swallow higher rates and, of course, what's going on with buying and nervousness over inflation. The long and the short of it is, I think yield curves are going to remain more on the flat side, but I think they're going to be taking back a little flatness as the 30-year and the 10-year, of course, start to price in a bit more inflation, more in tune with some of the levels we see on the break-evens in Europe. Right. Like, in other words, the less likely the Fed is to raise rates, the more likely yields are to rise, which is, you know, again, the paradigm that we've been in uh, maybe for quite some time. Rick, appreciate it for now. We'll check back in soon. Rick Santelli watching all the action in Chicago for us. Let's pick up the discussion with our energy, our, our markets panel, energy, a Freudian slip there. We've got rising rates, uh, slumping tech stocks and the energy crisis all hitting markets hard today with the Dow and S&P on pace for their worst day since May. We're just off the session lows. The Dow was over 600 points down a moment ago. Chris Crisanti is chief equity strategist and senior portfolio manager at MAI Capital Management. And Mark Avalone is president of Potomac Wealth Advisors. It's good to have you guys both here. Chris, I'll start with you and how much further you think this move has to run. Oh, I think it may have a little further to run, Kelly. It's nice to be with you again. Um, what I would say, though, is I would be a buyer of, of equities here. I, I think what we're doing is coming to really the end of a Delta variant-induced slowdown. And, and I think it's the end because we're starting to see some things that people are taking as negatives. For example, oil is going up, interest rates are going up. But, but that's not a bug. It's a feature of a growing economy. And sure, do, does anybody love higher rates? Not necessarily. But if they're a byproduct of a growing economy and that economy continues to grow next year, I think we'll be just fine. And I'd, I'd continue to buy equities here. 
continue to buy equities. Uh, Mark, I think a lot of people are going to want to know maybe which kind. Um, you know, financials and energy, we saw that trade in the first quarter. Is the trade back on now? And if so, for yeah, I mean, it's obviously back on. But for how long do you think? Well, for short-term traders, these are the sort of rotations that they feast on and what they enjoy. We tend to be a little more longer term. But yes, we are very positive on financials. There's there's a couple of dynamics that go even beyond the, the rate hike cycle that we may, maybe not the rate hike cycle, but the tapering in a rising rate environment. That is favorable for banks. We also saw another regional bank merger next year. We expect those to continue. Banks must consolidate. There's too many stores and they need to close to compete with online banks and the, and the mega banks. So I think you, you'd be well served to look at a, a broad range of regional banks here that are going to benefit also from a stronger economy, rising rates and potential merger, uh, increasing their valuations. And, you know, it's interesting that even while you're saying that, I know you also like the tech names, Mark. So which of them, all of them, would you be adding here? You're not concerned that rising rates sort of threaten their attractiveness and that sense in which they typically act uh, like kind of long duration bonds. And I understand that sentiment. And when there's a momentum trade like today and rates are moving sharply, I, I would expect growth to pull back. But we would look at that more as an opportunity for long term investors to buy quality names. Look, if you if you if you want to sell Apple because the 10 years at at one point five percent, maybe you never should have been there. The, the huge cash flow machines of companies like like Microsoft or Alphabet and Facebook, these are not your typical tech companies that suffer because the longer dated cash flows are discounted at a higher rate. I think that's where investors need to be careful in lower quality names, tech names that aren't cash flowing. That's where investors should be careful in a rising rate environment. I wouldn't fear these behemoths who have massive cash flows and have become almost utilities for the economy. Chris, I see that you like names like Boeing and Disney here, but when you have names like Apple and the rest of big tech off 10% from their highs, is that a chance to add them? Sure. No, no. I think there's clearly opportunities to be opportunistic. But but what I would say is I, I disagree with my friend a little bit in that I don't think this is purely momentum. I think the market is acting commonsensically because it all of a sudden it sees the economy getting better. Rates are going up. So a, a stock like Boeing, a reopening stock like Disney, his banks, for example, ought to do quite well, as you pointed out with Rick uh, Santini. It's, uh, it's going to be a, a steeper yield curve. So that's great for the bank. So I think the world is changing. And while I like tech, I think right now that's not the game that you want to be playing. I think right now you want to be finding those opportunities. We get a second bite at the apple here, Kelly, hmm. because these reopening stocks have come down with Delta and now they're going to go up again. Quick last thing I'd ask, Chris, is this time the energy trade looks much more uncomfortable. You know, the, the pace of the sure. increases and right. there's sort of one thing to be said for, hey, we're coming out of the pandemic you know, energy demand is going to be higher. And another to say, hey, we have a totally bizarre supply crunch going on right now, in large part because Russian gas isn't there. And that's going to cause a huge crunch with backlash from politicians and all the rest. Is that a a trade you really want to be on the long side of? You know, we don't really want to be, uh, Kelly, but but boy, it it sure looks like it has legs. Hmm. But but to us, it's not, we don't love those companies. They're too unpredictable. Their returns on equity aren't great. The CapEx requirements are so large. You know, and once every five or seven years, boy, uh, we sit back enviously and look at them. But right now, I, I think we're probably in the sixth or seventh inning there. And, and, you know, I think it's a little late. All right. We'll have to leave it there, guys. Thanks for your time today. It's good to see you. Chris Crisanti and Mark Avalone on the markets. We want to go back to Rick Santelli for the results of that seven-year auction. He mentioned, Rick, what are we learning? 
You know, here's what we learned. I gave the auction a B. All the internals were basically slightly above average. The yield, 1.332. What we learned is with the big concession, meaning rates have risen, prices fallen. If you want to buy, that's a good time to buy. Kind of been on sale. And it did act that way. They showed up, but they didn't chase it. And investors weren't aggressive, which tells me they're not quite sure if they should believe the sell-off or they should be buying this dip in prices. All right, Rick, thank you. Rick Santelli with the seven-year yielding about 1.326%. Let's turn to the energy discussion, pick up on that gas prices, which, remember, these were up more than 10% earlier today. They've since dipped negative. Uh, they're still up about 20% in just the past week as nat gas nears the $6 mark. It's currently about 5.77 or so. It's prompting huge rallies in shares of companies like Chenier, up more than 60% since January. Range and Antero have more than tripled. But are these prices sustainable? And if so, what kind of cataclysmic results could it cause around the globe? Brian Sullivan is here with more on what's driving the surge, Brian, and how long it can last. Oh, the second part, I don't know, but I do know the first, and I'll talk <laughs> about it. By the way, the CEO of Chenier, Jack Fusco, will be on with us here on WEX Worldwide Exchange next week. Just a quick tease there. All right. What is happening really overseas, Europe and Asia? Truly incredible, Kelly, and I don't say incredible like in a good way. Prices for natural gas, they are through the roof, and that is not TV hyperbole. I want you to look at this chart. Now, this is chart priced in British pence per thermal unit, but don't worry. We can do all the conversion for you. It basically shows the spot contract for natural gas now above $25 per contract in parts of Europe, and we're hearing talk of up to 30 or even above 30 in China. All right, what exactly does that mean? Well, consider this. Let's look at the U.S. natural gas futures price, the one that we talk about all the time. It's at $5.79, which, by the way, is actually a seven-year high. So consider that. Spot gas prices in Europe are about 350% higher than here, and Asia 400% higher. The question is why? Well, the answer is not just one thing. Really, if you break it down, there are four reasons why we are seeing this phenomenon. Okay, here we go. Number one, you just referenced it. Lower supplies from Russia, They've been a bit stingy, and some suspect that so they can apply leverage over Germany to get that key gas pipe in the Nord Stream 2 approved. Could you imagine Vladimir Putin doing something like that? No. Also, other power sources aren't meeting enough expected demand. They took a bunch of coal offline, and literally the wind has not been blowing in Italy or in the North Sea, so wind energy has been kind of a dud. Third, China's demand sky highs. They come booming out of the pandemic, which is why they're willing to pay nearly anything for LNG right now. And fourth, global supply is lower in part because 20% of U.S. production, Kelly, is still offline during Hurricane Ida. Now, because people are nervous about not having enough supply, they're almost panic buying, like we're seeing with gasoline in the U.K. So what does this mean for Europeans and for us? Okay, for, for Europeans, it means that electricity prices are going to soar, and they already are in some places that are not on fixed pricing contracts. One of those is Spain. The impact they're already being felt. Wholesale electricity prices are nearly 200 euros per megawatt hour. All right, what the heck does that mean? Well, they'd normally be between 10 and 40 euros per megawatt hour. So maybe 50 at the high end. So they're nearly four times their normal price. Put that in the real world context, Kelly. Let's say uh, your home, the electricity bill is, I don't know, 200 bucks a month right now for AC or heating. Suddenly you open your bill and it's 500, 600 or more. That's what's happening in Spain. 
And when other countries like Germany, France, and most of Europe that are on twice per year pricing changes, right now they're in fixed contracts, start to roll over, costs for hundreds of millions more people may start to surge. This is probably the single biggest global economic story that is happening right now. And I guess these days, that's kind of saying something. It's saying a lot, Brian. We're also beleaguered that the last thing we want now is the most vital supply crisis to be the power supply. So, you know, again, in the UK, when you have a lot of these bills are actually capped to households, that's why you have power providers literally going under. Um, some are refusing new customers and all the rest of it. I, I guess I just wonder if you're, again, kind of saying, or if you're along this trade, you have to assume that policymakers aren't going to intervene here. And I don't see how they couldn't. I don't know how they fix it, but they're going to have to do something. Well, they've got the climate summit October 31st to I think it's November 12th in Scotland. There is a meeting October 21st, according to Reuters, to, quote, discuss it. Here's the reality. okay? we're coming out of a pandemic. People are already ticked off. All right. And if you start having people whose bills triple, quadruple or they do not have heat. Right. Because, you know, a bunch of rich bureaucrats in Brussels decide to pull a bunch of coal Mm -hmm. uh, plants offline. I'm not sure. You see what I'm you see where I'm going. It's a pretty I'm bad look. It it's, a, it. it's a pretty bad look. The population's not dumb. And to the extent to which they think that's a, a reason for it, they're going to be absolutely furious. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens over the past month if these prices don't collapse. Yeah. Brian, we appreciate it. Look forward to seeing yeah. uh, Shanir getting more thoughts on them as well. Maybe the U.S. actually could benefit from demand for L- uh, LNG in the long run. Coming up, we have team coverage of this market sell-off and the dysfunction in D.C. As we approach, oh yes, the deadline to fund the government. We'll bring you the latest in a moment. We're also watching the payment stock. Some of the biggest underperformers today as a big legacy name enters the buy now, pay later space. We'll tell you who it is and what it means for fintech. As we go to break, here's a look at the Dow 30 heat map as it dips negative for the quarter, dropping below 35,000. Only three names in the green. I think uh, Chevron was one of them earlier. Interestingly, Goldman, one of the worst performers Uh, We'll have more in a moment. We're back in a minute. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Congress is racing to address the debt limit and avoid a government shutdown before time runs out. But the process is proving to be even more complex than expected. Elon Moy is live in Washington with the very latest for us. Elon? 
Well, Kelly, Democrats are scrambling to find that path forward on the debt ceiling now that we know the deadline is October 18th. I tried to ask Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen after her hearing whether markets might be getting a little bit worried about this. She didn't respond, but she has emphasized that even a delay in raising the debt ceiling could start to spook investors. Now, today, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer will ask for unanimous consent to be able to raise the debt ceiling with a simple majority vote, meaning that Republicans would not technically have to support it. But the GOP is expected to block that maneuver as well. It is a way out. It's a straightforward proposition. If Republicans really want to see debt ceiling raised without providing a single vote, I'm prepared to hold that vote. Now, this all puts Democrats right back at square one. This morning, Democrats in the House were talking about shifting the responsibility to the administration, minting that trillion-dollar coin, or even that the Constitution means the debt ceiling isn't necessary. But, guys, Republicans say that Democrats should just use the same fast-track process that they're using to pass the social spending package to raise the debt ceiling as well. But Democrats see that as a last resort. Kelly. Elon, we appreciate it. Elon Moy of the very latest for us. As we turn to the other drama on Capitol Hill, Fed Chair Powell revealing some new information in his Senate testimony today regarding a story we've been following closely, the controversy surrounding trading and asset holding by Fed officials. Our senior economics reporter Steve Leisman is here with the details on the very latest. Steve. Kelly, thanks. Fed Chair Jay Powell in that testimony before Congress revealing that the Federal Reserve is looking into the legality of trades by Fed officials. He did not mention what trades specifically and who was being looked at. But Fed Presidents Eric Rosengren and Robert Kaplan, as you know, resigned yesterday among questions surrounding their trade practices last year. We're also looking carefully at, at the trading uh, that, that, that was done to make sure that it's, uh, that it's uh, in compliance with our rules and, and, uh, and with the law. Both Kaplan and Rosengren said their trading were within the law and the Fed's code of conduct. Powell said... That may well be the case, showing the need for rules to change. Even if, as appears to be the case, these appears to be the case, these trades were in compliance with with the existing rules. That just tells you that the, the problem is that the rules and the, and the practices and the disclosure needs to be improved. Powell has promised a wide-ranging review of the Fed's code of conduct in the wake of this controversy. Banking Committee Chair Sherrod Brown told CNBC's Alon Moy, you just saw her in the previous report, that he thinks Fed officials should be barred from trading and owning individual stocks. Kelly? Steve, perhaps the larger narrative here is whether Fed Chair Powell is out of a job. As Dave Zervos over at Jeffries today writes, he thinks he might be because of these trading issues on top of everything else. Um, he says, why didn't they just do something like Alan Greenspan, where everything was held in a blind trust? How could Powell own munis and then approve a muni bond uh, asset facility for the first time? You know, I, I understand if the Fed is going through an unprecedented crisis and needs to respond to it and not be hamstrung in doing so. But there was still a year and a half between the time that these programs began and then we had these revelations. So it does feed into the timing leading up to his renomination or lack thereof. Senator Warren came out against it today. Um, I just wonder if there's going to be more of a drumbeat, actually, for him not to be renominated in the wake of all of this, uh, more so than we might have thought even a week or two ago. Yeah, and let me clarify, Kelly, that Warren's objections are different, right? As you know, Warren feels like Powell has done too much to deregulate the banks or amend Dodd-Frank. 
Uh, and just to be clear, Powell pretty roundly uh, rejected those criticisms from Warren saying that the banks indeed had a lot more capital than they've almost ever had. Uh, but but she had said he is a dangerous man and that she would oppose his renomination. So, you know, the progressive Democrats, on the other hand, they have been clamoring for a different Fed chair. That's one. And then you did not have, by the way, any other Democrats come forward and defend Powell from Warren. That's two. And then you have this question about how the um, inflation issue plays. Finally, mm-hmm. the final question, I think, is this ethics controversy. And he still has a couple cards to play in that in terms of how, the, how he can respond and put the Fed respond, how the Fed responds and getting the Fed out in front on this issue. Well, the resignations did happen very quickly, but then others are wondering why Powell himself didn't call for them. Um, it it may be, Kelly, I can't say for sure, but it could be because he doesn't really have a role in that regard. Uh, It is a decision of the boards of directors. As I understand it, he did not call for them. He did not ask for their resignation. He allowed, I believe, the process to play out at the local level, which is sort of how the Fed is set up in that regard. These were the decisions of individual banks with their boards of directors who appoint and I think can get rid of their bank president. Interesting, interesting. Steve, thanks for all the reporting today. Uh, We'll see just how monumentous it ends up being. Our Steve Leisman with the very latest there. Now, will the resignations of those hawkish presidents, Rosengren and Kaplan, change the timeline for a Fed taper? And how might all of this affect Fed policy in the next couple of months? Joining me now is Bill Lee. He's chief economist at the Milken Institute, Bill. It's great to have you. I mean, do you want to just offer a comment about this ethics issue and if it is likely to strip uh, the Fed chair himself of his job, you know, how much more important would that be in terms of changing Fed policy? Well, that's a great question, Kelly. As an ex-Fed staffer, and I still consider myself a, a Fed guy, despite the fact that I've been at the IMF and city much longer periods. And, and the key thing about the Fed is that it's had a tradition of pristine behavior on the part of its personnel. Its integrity was always unquestioned. And to see these trades done by bank presidents really saddens me because it goes against the tradition within the Fed staff. So so I think the, the, the rules have to be enforced. And I think that it's very important to modernize these, rule, these rules of conduct. And as far as your question about impact on monetary policy, we're losing two fairly aggressive hawks uh, uh, from the FOMC by these, losing these presidents. But it's really clear that the board of directors in these regional banks will likely pick people who are going to be very similar to them. Now, Rob Kaplan had a tremendous sway and Rosengren had a tremendous sway because of their their, their, their their service and their intellectual firepower. And I think going up, we're going to see this hawkish tilt progress more because Jim Bullard and Esther George are also becoming voting members. So we're really having a convergence of hawks, whereas the centrists and doves on the board are starting to leave. So let me highlight this. It's very interesting, and it's against the grain right now, because, Bill, as you know, the current line of thought is the more vacancies, the more likely the Fed is to become dovish. There's a lot of political pressure on them, obviously, from uh, the White House, you know, just the Democratic Party in general. And there's a thought that even though the regional banks uh, choose their own representatives, that somehow that political pressure is manifested and those who are more dovish. You have a completely different point of view on this, which is, you know, the selections will remain on the hawkish side, that we've got... Bullard, who just this morning was talking about the need to shrink the balance sheet next year, coming on to the Fed staff. And so I guess the only thing I wonder is, is the market not pricing that in? You know, a hawkish Fed would tend to sink bond yields. And in fact, we see them rallying the curve, steepening somewhat. And so the line of thought right now is a more dovish Fed could be a reason for that. 
Well, right now, the key question is a hawkish Fed will be very aggressive against inflation. And the real question to ask is, can the Fed do anything about the current high prices that we're seeing? And Chair Powell has gone on and on about this is not your, your grandmother's inflation. It is not the inflation we saw in the 60s where it was demand pull. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really caused by shortages and bottlenecks. And I think that's the line that is going to be attacked by the more aggressive hawkish members who are going to be voting members. Because they're going to say, you know, even though it's supply side generated and its duration is much longer than we are anticipated, its size is much larger than we had thought. So we're going to have to do something and pull back demand to offset these high prices, try to bring down the average level of prices. That's where the markets are starting to price in a much more aggressive monetary policy. And that's why you see the entire yield curve rise right. uh, in the last several days. I guess, you know, and this is not my argument to make, but I do as an onlooker wonder if if the point of high prices is to cause demand destruction, which is what it does when natural gas is where it is. The whole point is to destroy demand. So why would you need the Fed to destroy more demand on top of that? Can't the prices just do it themselves? That's exactly what I would say. Um, but apparently the so-called price elasticities of these certain items just aren't enough to destroy enough demand. So what we the, the argument among a lot of the hawks is you got to offset even more downward pressure, put more downward pressure on other prices to get us that average inflation rate from 4% uh, and better now down to two and a quarter. By the way, the FOMC itself, the average uh, uh, inflation forecast for next year is about two and a quarter. The range is from two to two and a half. So the majority of the FOMC believes we will be seeing two and a half to three percent inflation sometime next year. That's true. That's not even something we're debating. Uh, and at this point, the pressures look worse. Bill, it's great to have you. Thanks for all your thoughts today. Thanks for having me. Bill Lee is with the Milken Institute. As we head to break, Ford is one of the few bright spots in today's sell-off as they announce four new plants and 11,000 new jobs. Shares are up nearly 2%. We'll bring you all the details. In fact, Ford's now up 60% this year. And here's a look at the S&P 500 heat map. About two out of the 10 lines are in the green today. It's the worst day for the index since May and the worst month so far since last September. We're back after this. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Minus 606 was session low for the Dow so far. That was in the, just the past hour or so. We're about 100 points off that level, still down 1.5% for the blue chips, which are actually the outperformer today. You have the S&P 500 down 1.8%. The Nasdaq is down 2.5% as people are concerned about the fact that their inflation is worse than maybe the industrial sector. Remember, tech has high headcount as part of its operating costs. That moves up with inflation. Industrial sector, you can th see things more fixed. They get better operating leverage. Anyway, that's the rotation that's going on. Energy is the only group in the green. Tech and communication services are the biggest laggards, with tech on pace for its worst day since May. Here are some of the movers we're watching. With mega cap tech firmly in the reds as yields move higher, cloud stocks and remote work names are also moving lower. Uh, for example, Zscaler down 4.5%. Zoom even down more than 4% as well. Uh, we're talking about the worst quarter since going public two and a half years ago. Uh, Adobe is down 12% in September for its worst month in more than a decade. And here's a look at the vaccine makers also seeing big declines. Novavax down about 11%. Moderna down another five or so percent today. And it's now down 15% since Friday, even BioNTech shedding more than 7% on the session. Over to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel? 
Hi, Kelly, and here's what's happening at this hour. The man who has already been sentenced to life in prison for killing four people at a massage business has pleaded not guilty to four more counts of murder. Robert Aaron Long could face execution if he's convicted on the new charges. Eleven people have been charged in the hazing death of Adam Oaks, a student at Virginia Commonwealth University. The charges come six months after Oaks was found dead. His family says that he attended a frat initiation party where he was told to drink an entire bottle of whiskey. And on the news, new calls to abolish fraternities and sororities at Northwestern University. We're going to have a reporter on the ground. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. And Amazon is unveiling a raft of new products. There's an Amazon Echo that you can hang on a wall, the company's first smart thermostat, and there's this. Meet Astro, a home robot that puts your Alexa on wheels. It can also talk to other smart devices and even up your home security by patrolling the house. Astro will cost about $1,000 and be available by invite only. No release date has been set. But Kelly, it's like something out of a sci-fi movie. Yes, I'm waiting for the iteration that does household chores, and then I'm all in. <laughs> here, here, me too. Well, thank you very much. Coming up, shares of Apple are down about two for two and a quarter percent today. We're going to talk to Dan Niles of the Satori Fund about the tech wreck, his concerns about Apple, and where he does see opportunity next. We're back in two minutes. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Tech stocks are getting hit hard as bond yields climb. The Nasdaq pacing for its worst day since March. Here to help make sense of it all, let's welcome in Dan Niles. He's the founder and portfolio manager of the Satori Fund. Dan, it's great to have you here. Don't have a ton of time, and I want to rattle through about 18 different things. So let's see how much, <laughs> how much of it I can get through. Big picture, what do you say to those who say that tech is more vulnerable to higher rates uh, because they don't have uh, as good operating leverage from inflation and all the rest of it? Is the sector... Broadly speaking, some uh, something to be avoided for the time being. Yes, because all of that is true. Um, the other thing is, don't forget, a lot of tech companies benefited last year from the global pandemic, and that you streamed more movies, you bought more things uh, through e-commerce, etc. And so there was this massive uptake during that period of time. And now what you're seeing is streaming companies are missing forecasts. Um, e-commerce companies are missing forecasts. FedEx just, you know, when they gave their updates that e-commerce was worse than expected, et cetera. So, and, you know, the tech companies also, the big thing is companies that don't make a lot of earnings and you're looking for earnings, you know, 10 years into the future, as interest rates go up, those earnings get discounted at a much higher rate. And that hurts tech stocks disproportionately that have high growth rates, but very little profits. Why would you be a buyer of Google, though, with all of that said? Well, with Google, you look at it and you say the company is growing revenues in the high 30 percent range year over year. It's trading at below market multiple. And they also benefit from economies reopening in the sense that they have about 10 to 15 percent of their revenues in travel and in hotel and leisure activities. And so you really get that benefit. And they're obviously in the cutting edge of a variety of different technologies. And so they're one of the few exceptions to that rule. Don't forget, they got hurt by the pandemic last year because there was no advertising from a lot of sectors, Um, but they still managed to grow revenue. So it tells you how strong their business model really is. And I was surprised that one of the areas you're actually most bullish about right now is sports betting. Yeah, I mean, if you look at sports betting, you know, there's very few sectors that are left that still are getting transformed by the Internet. And sports betting is one of them. Um, Don't forget, you've got about, you know, a couple of dozen states that have legalized gambling, but only about 15 or so of them have 
um, online sports betting allowed. And also this year, you've got the NFL allowing these companies to advertise within the game their offerings. And so you should see very strong growth. This is a space that should grow 30% a year for the next several years. And the nice thing is a lot of these stocks have gotten absolutely killed as tech has rolled over. So, um, you know, we're actually uh, adding to some of our positions in that space today, which is great because the stocks are getting absolutely crushed. Let's talk old tech, where we've already noted that names like Cisco and Dell and Oracle have had really nice gains this year, almost doubled the S&P 500. I haven't checked in after this past month or so, but um, are do you continue to like this space? Uh, I don't know if they've created you know, a huge opportunity here because, like I said, they've been up so nicely. But if there is any sell-off, would you be a buyer of those dips? Yeah. I mean, um, the biggest picture way to think about this is last year you wanted to own consumer because we were all stuck at home buying things online, streaming things, playing video games, et cetera. This year you want to buy businesses that were clobbered last year because nobody was going into the office. And so names like Cisco and Oracle and Dell, those are the types of names you want to be in. The other thing you benefit from is they trade at half the market multiples in a lot of cases. They've got dividends or in Dell's case, we'll have a dividend with the VMware spend that's coming. And so that's the type of name you want to own in this environment. And you can see it today. Those names are vastly outperforming in this type of tape where tech in general is getting absolutely destroyed even though those names have actually outperformed year-to-date quite nicely. And I should mention, even though you're cautious on streaming, which I would assume includes names like Netflix and Disney, you do like Viacom CBS. Yeah, I like Viacom CBS a lot because, again, you can either pay 50 times um, uh, earnings, or if you look at Viacom CBS, you can pay 10 times earnings for a company that did almost a billion dollars in streaming revenues last quarter that grew that revenue at over 90%. Roku grew their revenues at just over 80%. You look at Netflix, it was about 20%. So, you know, they're growing much faster. People hate the space, which is great because it gives you an opportunity to buy something with a dividend, with a low PE, whose business is doing fantastically well. And I think when companies report this quarter, Disney's already told you their subs are light. Discovery's already told you their subs are light. Netflix missed the last two quarters. We'll see what happens this quarter. They seem to sound pretty good. Um, but I think you're going to see fantastic numbers out of Viacom at a 10 PE, which is less than half the market multiple. So let me end, Dan, by putting this all in context, because we've heard uh, a lot of specific names that you do like. But caution about the tech sector, broadly speaking, and some of big tech and maybe some caution about the stock market overall as well with the, your analogies to the 1970s and so forth. So what does the portfolio look like for the investor who might be watching and agreeing with that? Is it comprised of just a concentrated portfolio of a few names that might have some overlap with tech, but you avoid a lot of the rest of it? I mean, what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, so we've written up a lot of this on DanNiles.com for your viewers who you know wanted. Uh, more detail. But yeah, I mean, in general, we have more shorts in tech than we have longs. Our longs are more in areas like financials, um, energy, et cetera. We're actually selling some of those names to buy a little bit of the cover, some of the shorts that we have. We're, we're having a pretty solid day. Our, short, our longs are getting killed, but our shorts are getting destroyed. And so that's kind of how you're trying to balance the portfolio. And interest rates are going to go to 2%. Um, that's been our take for a while. And that hurts tech names in particular, and that interest rates are going up driven by financials, energy, and things like that. And so 
that's where you want to have the mix of your portfolio. And be very careful because don't forget the underlying backdrop is valuations at record levels. Yeah. Uh, market cap to GDP at two times. The 50-year average is 0.8. The tech bubble peak was 1.4. You're taking a lot of risk if you stay with tech right now. Dan, we appreciate it. Thanks for walking through pretty much every aspect of this market, especially in a sell-off like this one. I, you know, I, we actually killed a commercial break to fit it all in. So that's about the, the biggest compliment I can offer. <laughs> Thanks for your Thank time you. today. We'll check back in soon, Dan Niles. Meanwhile, consumer discretionary is one of the worst performing sectors, down a little about 2% right now. Remember, it's tech heavy. Could the dip provide some buying opportunities? Dom Chu is here with the names the street says could climb higher. Dom? So says the analysts, right? So if you take a look at consumer discretionary as a sector for sectornomics this month, it has been an underperformer versus the S&P 500. If you look at the chart on a year-to-day basis, those two lines tend to track pretty closely up until about May, early June, when you see that orange line diverging. That orange line, by the way, is the broader market. The white line is the consumer discretionary sector. So the broader market is out perform. Now, there have been some stocks that have been beaten up. And for that reason, average analyst target prices for these names still remain well above where they're currently trading. The five biggest gaps in terms of where prices are right now compared to where they should be based upon analyst, average analyst target prices are Las Vegas Sands, which has a 53 percent implied upside to analyst target prices. Home Builder Pulte Group, 42 percent. VF Corp at 41 Gap at 40% and General Motors, not nearly the performer that Ford has been over the course of this year, and implied up 36%. So those are the big potential upsides. Now, as opposed to the downsides where maybe the stocks have already run their course, check these out because Tesla could have a a, a downside target of about 12%. Tractor Supply has had a great run this year, down 4%. Hilton and Marriott on that reopening trade have maybe run their course, and Chipotle. It's sitting right at where its target price is right now. So, Kelly, when it comes to discretionary, there are parts of the market that have really underperformed. Maybe that is where some of the outperformance could come if there is a broader catch-up trade, Kel. Consumer discretionary, back over to you. All right, Dom. Thank you very much. The headlines just keep coming. We've got some news out of J.P. Morgan. According to Reuters, CEO Jamie Dimon says the bank has begun preparing for a potential credit default as congressional talks get down to the wire. He said he does expect lawmakers will address the debt limit in time and that he supports a bill that would get rid of the debt ceiling. But he warns failure to pass legislation in time would be, quote, potentially catastrophic. Coming up, the Code Conference is underway, bringing some of the biggest names in media and tech together. The co-CEO of Waymo joins us with Carl next to discuss the future of autonomous driving. Stay with us. Welcome back, everybody. The Code Conference is underway, drawing executives from across the tech and media space. Our Carl Quintanilla is out in L.A. and joins us now with the co-CEO of Waymo. Carl? Hey, Kelly, thank you very much. The Kidra Maracana does join us here in L.A. at Code, where so many themes are, are being talked about, including mobility and definitely autonomy. Thanks so much for the time this afternoon. Great to see you. Thank you. Great uh, to be here. It's funny, you know, we're dealing on a day where uh, the market's sort of been roiled with headlines about driver shortages in the U.K. and how do we get fuel from here to there? Are there enough school bus drivers in America? I wonder if you think if, if autonomy were mature, truly mature today, how many of these troubles that we're talking about might be alleviated? So it's, there's no doubt that they would be alleviated. And the reason is because at Waymo, we're focused on two sides of our business. Waymo Via, which is where we focus on moving goods, and Waymo One, where we focus on moving people. 
And once you build the driver, the Waymo driver, you have this ability to deploy it across multiple business cases. And so in the question that you're asking, we would be deploying it in those use cases. I think often people think of autonomy as replacing the driver versus being an opportunity to actually address the shortages. Does all of the concern about moving goods, in particular this year and maybe part of last year, mean that trucking and delivery of goods is a higher priority now at Waymo than it was before? So now for us, and the reason we think about this, once you've built the driver, you can actually deploy it across all of these business use cases. So we're starting with ride hailing, and that's why we've launched our ride hailing service. Um, but we've also, we're testing Class 8 trucks. We've partnered with Daimler Trucks to have a Class 8 truck. And we're, par- we're testing local delivery with UPS and AutoNation. And so we think there are multiple ways to leverage the driver. So let's talk about the, uh, the testing you're doing. You've been in Phoenix historically, yes. right? Famous for Phoenix. But now San Francisco, yes. which where I imagine the topography, <laughs> the roads, the bridges are totally different. Is it a big challenge or is it, is it a natural evolution? So it's both. It's both. So building the Waymo driver, what you learn is that going to a city like Phoenix, Arizona, when we did, it was early days. So bringing the community along was really important, teaching them sort of getting their feedback and teaching them what to expect in the service. Now, anyone who goes to Phoenix can download the app and they take a ride and the car shows up. It's completely empty. It's one of our Chrysler Pacifica minivans. It has the Waymo driver in it. In San Francisco, there are Jaguar Land Rover I-Paces. They have our next generation, which is our fifth generation driver in them. We still have the autonomous specialist behind the wheel. And so San Francisco residents are now having the chance to have this experience where, one, we have this one mom who she's lived there for a long time, but now she's experiencing the city with her son through these new lens. And then we have people in the city who are really passionate about actually figuring out how to improve mobility. And so they're our riders, so they can provide us with that feedback. So just to to sum it up, for viewers who are like, all right, I've been hearing about it for so long, Waymo, 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 driverless, driverless. At what point does it really become an everyday occurrence in everyone's life? Where are we? What inning are we in? Yeah, it's a really, really great question. And obviously, we're focused, laser focused on delivering that. I mean, I don't have a date and a timeline. And I'd say one of the biggest learnings, you know, we were founded in 2009 as the Google Self-Driving Car Project. We've been at this for a long time. And one of the lessons learned is that when you're pioneering, you have to have enough humility to know what you don't know. And I think in the early days, we attempted to predict around the corner and down the hill And we don't do as much of that anymore. And I think the reason we don't is as we, you know, there's sort of that last 1%. (laughs) And as you continue to tackle that, you know, moving from Phoenix to San Francisco, that now operating in two cities, that's an exciting development. And at the same time, testing our Class 8 trucks between Tucson and Dallas, that's an exciting. So we're really celebrating each of the milestones and focused on the shared tech platform that the Waymo driver gives us the chance to then focus on commercialization. Right. And scale. I'm sure a lot of this is going to come up in your chat. You're on the lineup uh, regulation and everything else. We look forward to listening to that, too. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Carl. Kelly, back to you. Thanks for bringing that to us, Carl. We look forward to a whole lot more today and this week from Code. And coming up, shares of Ford. Speaking of autos and mobility, Ford's higher after announcing it'll invest billions of its own into four new plants in the U.S. We'll dig into the numbers and the impact right after this. 
Welcome back, everybody. Ford making a huge investment in the Midwest and betting billions on electric vehicles. Phil LeBeau spoke with Ford, Ford CEO Jim Farley and has the details now. Hi, Phil. Hey, Kelly, take a look at this investment. We're talking about four brand new plants, two that are going to be in Tennessee, one building the the new electric F-Series. That's a brand new final assembly plant, another one for battery cell production, and then two battery cell plants, brand new outside of Louisville, where Ford has a couple of plants. The whole idea here, as they add 11,000 jobs, is that these are green sheet facilities. They're going to be building these from the ground up. They're also going to be huge. They want to cut down on the potential pollution, as well as have these battery production facilities right next to the plants where the EVs will be built. Look at the chip situation. We have to insource the batteries. We have to learn how to manufacture them in this country. We can no longer import raw materials from halfway around the world like cobalt. Um, these, These materials have to come from North America. And there will be a recycling component at all of these EV battery plants uh, facilities. One last thing, guys, you take a look at shares of Ford. This is a stock that is up uh, but 40% in the last year. We see first production from these facilities in 2025. Kelly, back to you. Giga Ford, we can call it. Phil, thank you very much. Phil LeBeau. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.